Advent is a season of hope, as we've mentioned several times already, and we will keep saying that. We're going to squarely focus on hope during the next uh, several weeks and then into the Christmas season as well. It's actually really helpful to separate Advent from Christmas. We all want to get into Christmas right away, I think many of us, but Advent is important because you're anticipating it. You're not, you're not celebrating Christmas yet. You're anticipating it. You're waiting for it. Part of being a Christian is, is learning to wait, learning to be patient and wait on the Lord. Now, of course, as we prepare for Christmas, you're thinking about all the Old Testament saints, everybody who's waited for Jesus to come and trusted the promises. And as Josh mentioned, those promises came true, and we see that those promises came true, which makes us now long for the second coming of Christ, trusting that the promises we have relating to that, to His return, will also come true. So we are learning to live in hope, to walk in hope as His disciples during this season. I think hope is absolutely essential to our faith. It's essential to Christianity, to our life with God, to our relationship with God. You can't really function as a Christian without hope. And yet, I find that many Christians today easily give into catastrophic thinking and fear and, and despair. And if the church struggles to live in hope, how can we serve the world in turmoil? So I want to take these four weeks, this Advent season, uh, and really even into Christmas, I think we'll remain focused on hope during Christmas as well. But when I look at, I want to look at these four passages that I picked from, two from the Old Testament, two from the New, and my purpose is to, to focus on these vivid metaphors of hope. Uh, just so you know, when I picked these passages, uh, at least two of them, I really had no idea what they're about. Uh, which is a fun exercise for a preacher to uh, pick a passage you don't really know what it says and then put it on the schedule and say, that's what we're going to be talking about in two weeks. But I trust that what the Holy Spirit does by allowing us to interact with these metaphors, these are pictures, these are images. I'm not necessarily looking for doctrinal statements, even though I'm sure we'll touch on lots of different doctrinal things. I'm looking for images I'm looking for, for metaphors. I'm looking for something that our hearts can connect to. So my, my goal through this series, as, as we look at uh, such metaphors, like today is the metaphor is the door. Uh, and then we'll look at the metaphor of being in prison. Prisoners of hope, what does that mean? We'll, we'll hopefully figure it out next week. We'll look at the, the image of putting hope on as a helmet. Um, and then the anchor of hope. These are all biblical images. And as we look at them, and we'll take each week for all of those, the four images, as we look at them, I expect that these images will engage our imagination. It's not just an intellectual exercise. I, I, I trust that our imagination will be engaged, that our affections will be captured by those images, that our, our spiritual posture will be corrected by these images, that, that we will kind of sit up straight and, and, and that our, our walk with Christ will be invigorated or maybe reinvigorated for, for some of us by these images. So my prayer is, just, I just want you to know where I am kind of going into this, this series. My prayer is that the Holy Spirit will use these images to renew our hope. My expectation is that all of us will become 
more hopeful as we go through the season of Advent together. And who doesn't want more hope, right? Who doesn't? Anybody here doesn't? You just use so much hope in your life. You say, enough, enough with the hope. To, nobody, right? I mean, we all want more, more hope. So, okay, so our first image uh, comes from the book of Hosea. Now, if you are not familiar with the book of Hosea, please read it. Read it this afternoon. Read it tonight. This is one of the, the, the clearest expression of the gospel of grace from the Old Testament. If you're one of those believers that thinks the New Testament is about grace, but the Old Testament is about the law, read Hosea. And read, and many other passages, by the way, but read Hosea and see God's grace on display towards his people. If you're not familiar with the book of Hosea, it's a book about a prophet, a faithful prophet, God's servant, whom, whom God says, you will marry a woman that will be unfaithful to you, and she will have children from her unfaithfulness. And God is saying, and I command you to love her and to keep taking her back and keep buying her out of sexual slavery to return her back into your home. I mean, these are, this is a a great story to see what God thinks about us, how God feels about his people. That even though we are unfaithful, even though we keep running away from him, we keep entangling us ourselves with other lovers, God is pursuing us. And his love is unrelenting. He will continue to pursue us until he will restore this marriage relationship with us. That's the book of Hosea. Through discipline, through forgiveness, through God's patience with us, through God's kindness to us again and again, he pursues us and he restores us back to himself. That's the context. So that's the first two chapters of Hosea. It's that story of the prophet and his unfaithful wife. And now we get to our passage in Hosea 2, 14 and 15. And this is where God begins to promise to us, to his people, what he will do with us, unfaithful people. Hosea 2, 14 and 15. This is God speaking. He says, therefore, behold, I will allure her or woo her or seduce her. That's the language. And bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. God is remembering the, the time when God and Israel were newly married after the rescue out of Egypt, that honeymoon in the wilderness. And there, God says, I will give her her vineyards. And I will bless her. I will restore everything that she lost because of my discipline and her unfaithfulness. I will restore to her her vineyards. And make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. That's God's promise to his people. He will continue to pursue us with his love until we respond. Until we answer as in the days of that young marriage. And the time when we were rescued out of the land of Egypt. That's the context. I want to keep that in mind. But I really want to focus on this one phrase. God's promise 
to make the valley of Achor a door of hope. To make the valley of Achor a door of hope. What does it mean? Because that's a promise. It's in the context of our sin and God's grace. But what does that mean? How can we today see a door of hope in our own valley of Achor? So let's explore this wonderful image together by dividing this phrase, which is also the title of the sermon, in two parts. So very simple outline today. First, the valley of Achor, and second, the door of hope. First, the valley of Achor, and second, the door of hope. Sometimes, the name of a town makes us wonder what happened there. For example, there's a town in New Mexico called Truth or Consequences. Where are you from? Truth or Consequences, New Mexico. Named after a a TV game show, by the way, just so you know. It's a town in North Carolina called Why Not? Wouldn't you have liked to be at that town hall meeting when they were deciding, right, on the name of the town? I think there's a lot of tired, impatient people that uh, eventually said, why not? Just Cut and shoot, Texas. Cut and shoot, Texas. I think we know what happened there and what led to that name. Kill Devil Hills, North Carolina. Kill Devil Hills. What happened there? Uncertain, Texas. Uncertain. Now, they're uncertain because on the border of Texas and Louisiana, so they're not sure where they belong. So they're uncertain, Texas. And then last chance, Iowa. Last chance, Iowa. Anybody from last chance, Iowa here? I guess you made it out if you're here, so got a second last chance. It's interesting how every place has history and there's a reason why it's called a certain way. And sometimes it's pretty pedestrian, you know, and sometimes it's really exciting and interesting. So let me tell you how the Valley of Achor got its name. Because what Hosea is doing here, he's he's mentioning the name, he's referencing a specific location in Israel, and he's allowing us to, to remember, to recall all that happened in Achor, all that led to that valley being called by that name, so that we can associate and identify with the experience of God's people there. So when Israel crossed the Jordan, you remember God took them out of Egypt, and they wandered in the wilderness, and finally they crossed the Jordan, and God is about to give them the land, the land that he promised for his people. And the first city that they encounter after they cross over the Jordan is the city of Jericho. And you remember, even if you haven't read the Bible, you remember what happened in Jericho, right? The trumpets and the marching around and the walls tumbling down. It's a great day or great week for Israel, right? They trust the promises of God. God says this is what you're supposed to do. They do it, and an amazing miracle happens. And they conquer that city. The next city on the list to conquer is Ai. No connection to artificial intelligence, okay? The city of Ai is is a smaller city. And so they, they send spies in there, and the spies come back and say, we, you know what, guys, we don't need the whole, the whole army to go there. Let's just send a few thousand. It's not going to be a big deal. I mean, if we could conquer Jericho like we did, we're going to be fine with Ai. So Israel sends a few thousand soldiers, and they get defeated. 
and people die. Israelites die in that battle. And what's worse, not only do they lose people, they lose courage. They run away. Their hearts melt, and they run away in shame, utterly defeated. Well, that changes the whole mood, right? Here they are, trusting God's promises, marching into the land, crossing the Jordan. Jericho tumbles down. They go to Ai, and they are utterly defeated. So Joshua, the leader of Israel at the time, becomes deeply discouraged. And by the way, I'm in Joshua 7, if you want to follow along or look it up later. Joshua gets deeply discouraged. He starts asking questions like, was God on our side? Is he, is he going to do what, what he told us he was going to do? Are we going to get this land? He's wondering if the Canaanites are going to defeat them and destroy the people of Israel now? He's thinking, do we have a future here? I mean, this is an, a, a spiritual crisis for Joshua. They're supposed to defeat everybody. And they saw that work in Jericho, but it doesn't work at Ai. And so he prays, rightly so. He goes to the Lord. Yes, he complains and he questions and he doubts and he challenges God's promises, but he's speaking to the Lord. And the Lord responds to him, and the Lord reveals to him that the reason Israel was defeated was because someone had kept the plunder from Jericho. Even though God had told them that everything that belongs to Jericho must be destroyed. And that means everything. Everything in the city, the walls, the whole thing. Riches, plunder, people, uh, livestock. Everything has to be destroyed. Now this is God's justice. This is God's prerogative. And God is saying, you do not take anything for yourself out of Jericho. But because someone in the camp of Israel disobeyed, and by the way, if you go to, to Joshua 6, that command is very clear. And God says, if you take something out, something that is devoted to destruction, and you bring it into the camp of Israel, now you are devoting the camp of Israel to destruction, which is exactly what happened at Ai. They went, and they got destroyed by their enemy. Now, finally... The Lord says you need to cast lots to figure out who it is, and people come by tribes, by clans, by families, and finally it's figured out that it's Achan. Achan and his family stole and lied about the plunder, and they hid the riches. They hid the gold and the garments in their tent in the ground. So that's, that's what's happening here. And now we get to the, to the Valley of Achor. I'm going to read Joshua 7, 24 and following. And Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, and the silver and the cloak and the bar of gold and his sons and daughters and his oxen and donkeys and sheep and his tent and all that he had. And they brought them up to the valley of Achor. And Joshua said, why did you bring trouble on us? The Lord brings trouble on you today. And all Israel stoned him with stones. They burned them with fire and stoned them with stones. And they raised over him a great heap of stones that remains to this day. Then the Lord turned from his burning anger. Therefore, to this day, the name of that place is called the Valley of Achor. Achor means trouble. The Valley of of trouble because Achan 
troubled Israel and brought destruction to the camp of Israel. And he himself was troubled by the Lord and destroyed. He, his family, all his possessions were devoted to destruction. So this valley of Achor is named after the sin of Achan that led to the defeat at Ai. This is what Hosea is referencing. When he says the Lord is going to open a door of hope in the valley of Achor, he wants us to think about what happened in that valley. He wants us to think about the destruction, the sin of Achan. He wants us to think about casting lots and figuring out who's at fault. He wants us to think about the total destruction that was in Jericho and then in Achan's tent. He wants us to think about that despair and that disillusionment and that defeat. And Hosea says that it's in that place, because he wants us to go to that place to identify with the people in the valley of ache or in the valley of trouble. Hosea says it's in that place that God will open a door of hope. Please follow the logic of Hosea. He's saying, before I can talk to you about hope, I need, you to, I need to take you emotionally, spiritually, I need to take you to the Valley of Achor. I want you to feel like Israelites felt, like Joshua felt. I want you to identify with that kind of level of despair, and then I want you to think about hope. So for Hosea to teach us what hope is, he has to take us to arguably the most hopeless place in Israel's history. When we hear about the Valley of Achor, we're meant to recall that episode. We're meant to identify with the experience of the people there. Because according to God's promise in our passage, it is precisely in a place like that, it is precisely in the Valley of Achor, in the Valley of Trouble, that a door of hope opens. Now you can't figure out hope, you can't experience hope unless you first find yourself in the valley of Acor. Are you in the valley of Acor? Have you ever been in the valley of Acor? I want you just to sit back and just, just listen to me. I'll use a number of words that hopefully will, will elicit emotion, that hopefully will connect you with your own experiences in your own life. Because I want you to feel like you're in that valley with the Israelites. I want you to feel like unless the Lord opens a door of hope, there is no hope for me. So if you're not in that place now, go to that place in your heart. Remember that place. Almost all of us, if not all of us, have been to that place. If we're not there now, we've been there. And you will most likely still be there at some time in the future. Are you in a place of trouble? Trouble. Modern word is dysfunction. A place of dysfunction when things are just not right. You look around your life and you're saying, this is not how things should be. I don't know how to fix it, but I know this is not the way it's supposed to be. Things are not clicking. They are not right. Maybe it's relationships. Maybe it's at work, maybe it's in school, whatever it is, but things are they're just not aligned right. There's dysfunction. Things that are supposed to work together are not working together. There's conflict. 
Are you in a place of defeat? Maybe you have battled sin and you've just totally given. And you realized how pervasive, how powerful sin really is. Maybe until then you thought you were doing pretty good. Maybe you felt like I've conquered that. And maybe it is a specific sin that you had been working on and trying to resist for many weeks or months or years. And then finally it just overwhelmed you. And you feel utterly defeated. I mean, imagine how Israelites felt. Utterly defeated by the little town of Ai. Are you in a place of despair? Well, I think despair is, we use that word often, but real despair, I think, is when you feel like you're, you're at a dead end. There's just no, nowhere else to go. This is it. This is the end of the road, and there's, there's nowhere else to go. I don't see any options here. I don't see any opportunities here to change anything. This is it, and I'm stuck here, and there's nowhere to go. Do you feel like that? Have you felt like that? Are you at a place of betrayal? Now, when we talk about sin, sin is not only something we do or we think or we, we initiate. It's also something that is done to us. You may be completely innocent and still be in the valley of Achor. Most of the Israelites didn't do anything wrong, although you can question whether they went, went forward in faith, whether they inquired of the Lord. We don't know. But they didn't take the plunder at Jericho. Achan did. His family hid it, but nobody else did. And yet, their brothers died. They were defeated. The whole community suffered. I can only imagine how betrayed they felt by Achan. Probably looked at him and said, we all knew. We heard the Lord tell us not to take anything, and you took it? And now we're all in trouble? We're all in the valley of Achor because of you? You ever felt like that? Somebody else did something. They were supposed to do things right by you, and they didn't. Maybe they actively did something that hurts you, and that puts you in the valley of Achor. Are you in a place of doubt? When everything is thrown into question, I mean, you thought that certain things were certain in your life. You thought that you can, you can base your decisions on certain foundations, and now the foundations have crumbled. And maybe it's political. Maybe you have trusted a system. Maybe it's cultural. Maybe you just thought certain things were true and true to everybody, and they're not anymore. It could be theological. It could be that all of a sudden the doctrines you believed in, and you could easily sign your name under no longer makes sense. And you don't know if they're true anymore. Or maybe you remember once you felt the presence of the Lord and now he seems very distant. And when you pray, he doesn't seem to listen. And when you plead with him, he doesn't seem to respond. And you don't know what to think about it. Is it faith? Do I, have, do I still believe? Are you in that place now? Have you been in that place? The Valley of Acre is a place of shame. There was tremendous shame in Israel on that day. Because they went forward saying, the Lord will give this land to us. 
We are God's chosen people, and God is going to judge these tribes, and we will take their land, and the Lord will receive glory from our victory. And then they ran away, cowards, defeated in shame. Have you been in a place like that? Where you have proclaimed something and you failed so miserably at it. You don't, you don't want to show your face to anybody. Maybe a father who has proclaimed, this is a Christian home. And we pursue holiness here and we obey the Lord here. And then the father fell into sin so spectacularly that he doesn't know what to say to his children anymore. What do you say? Is any of this true? Valley of Acre is a place of loss. Now in this case, people were lost. Lives were lost. People died in battle. Achan's whole family was destroyed because of that sin. Now many of us have experienced loss. Somebody close to you passes away. A relationship disappears. Somebody who you thought was your friend, you recognize them that it's not true. They're not a friend anymore, and maybe they were never your friend. There's a sense of loss. Are you in that place now? Have you been in that place? The Valley of Acre is a place of pain. We use the old word affliction in church. It's a good word. When you feel afflicted, you're hurting. You're hurting. There's pain. And pain could be of many kinds. Now, some of you are battling chronic physical pain. You just hurt most days, maybe every day. Whether you're awake or asleep, your body is, is just sore. It hurts. It does, and, it, and you know it's not going to get better. Are you in that place? Or does your heart ache? Many of us have deep wounds in our hearts. And maybe that's coming from way back from your childhood, knowing that your parents didn't love you. They were supposed to love you. You're supposed to learn what love is from them, and they just never loved you. Or maybe it's a recent wound. I know some of you are, are hurting because your children are not following the Lord. Because your children have walked away, not just from the Lord, but from you. And every time you have a minute to think, when your mind is not occupied by work or TV, you think about your kid. And you grieve and you hurt. Are you in pain? Are you being afflicted? I'm using all these words because I want us to identify with that experience. The, the value of a book like Hosea is not so much that it, it, it states the truth. It does that. The value of a book of Hosea, poetic books, prophetic books, is that it, it gives us images. It gives us emotional connections. It allows us to identify with something and feel something and know that it's real. Because unless we do that, there is no hope. That's what Hosea is saying. Unless you go into the valley of Achor, you're not going to find the door of hope. But if you are in the valley of Achor, and you know you are, 
and you know why you're there, and you feel it, Hosea says this is exactly the place, exactly the place where God opens a door of hope. Now, of course, this is exactly how the Bible works. This is exactly the logic and the dynamic of the gospel. Now, if you read the Bible, if you sing Christian songs, if you, even if you just pray, but especially during the season of Advent and Christmas, we see all these contrasts, right? Light shines in the dark. The Bible doesn't talk about light shining where it's already light and bright. That, that doesn't matter. What matters is that light shines in the dark, and darkness cannot overcome it. That's hope. That's what it's talking about. When you think about all these different aspects and descriptions of the gospel, of what God is doing for us in Christ, it's all built on these opposites. It's built on something that shouldn't happen to the people that it happens to. Right? Sinners are saved. Well, sinners are not supposed to be saved. You're a sinner. You're condemned. Guilty people are forgiven. You're not supposed to be forgiven if you're guilty. You're supposed to be punished. The sick are healed. The lost are found. This is how hope works. This is how the gospel works. And Isaiah doesn't take us to Jericho to teach us about hope. He's not saying the Lord is going to open a door of hope on the plains of Jericho. They didn't need hope on the plains of Jericho. They needed hope in the Valley of Achor. And we need hope in our own valleys of trouble because mercy comes to those who are in trouble and they know they're in trouble. The Lord said, I, I, I didn't come to heal the, the healthy people. Those who are fine, those who think they're fine, they're doing great and they're obedient and they don't need mercy. He's saying, I came for the sick. Those who are in trouble and they know they're in trouble, that's for whom mercy is. That's who, who experiences hope. So before you get to the, the positives of hope, right? And we, we're getting there right now. I know I took, I took a, long, a long time, but I wanna, I don't, I'm not going to leave you in the Valley of Acor, okay? But before you get there, you need to find yourself, yourself in that valley. You need, to, you need to accept it. And then you realize that it's exactly in that place that God promises to open a door of hope. Listen to the Puritan Jeremiah Burroughs. In his lectures on the prophecy of Hosea, he says, The afflictions of the saints, and by the saints he means all believers, the afflictions of the saints do not only go before mercies, but are doors of hope to let in mercies. Means to farther the way for mercies. God commands light to shine not only after darkness, but out of darkness. Joseph's prison, David's persecution, Daniel's den made way for glorious mercy God had in store for them. The saints may say, had it not been for such a grievous affliction, I had never come to the enjoyment of such a mercy. Burroughs says, hence we must learn not only to be patient in tribulation, but joyful. 
We are joyful in tribulation. We are joyful in our affliction because this is exactly where the door of hope opens. This is exactly where mercy comes. Burroughs is saying that mercy comes even before deliverance. Now, we associate mercy with deliverance, with the end of the affliction. The light shines, there's no more darkness, but biblically, that, that's not totally true. The light shines in the dark, mixing with darkness, illuminating in the dark. He's saying that we must be patient and even joyful in affliction because it is there that we receive mercy from God. We already receive mercy there in the Valley of Achor. Hosea is not saying, I'm going to take you out of the Valley of Achor so you can get hope. He's saying, no, no, hope comes into the valley. A door will be open in the Valley of Achor so you can see hope. That means that now, where you are in defeat, and dysfunction, and despair, and doubt, and pain, and betrayal, where you are right now, there's a door of hope ready to open for you. And right where you are, God means to give you mercy. There will be an ultimate mercy of deliverance. That is still coming. But before that happens, there is mercy already trickling down into your heart. The hope is already, the door is already open to hope. Now let me give an illustration, because as I'm thinking about these biblical images, I'm also looking for other illustrations to, to allow us to not just understand, but feel the, these ideas about hope. So if you were following that story, it was resolved last Monday, uh, 41 workers were trapped in a tunnel in India. They were there for 17 days. I don't know if you followed in the news, but it's a big, big deal. There's something wrong with the way they constructed the tunnel, and, and 41 people got trapped in that tunnel, and they were there over two weeks. Now, many attempts were made to get them out. Uh, it became a global news story. It involved many people with all sorts of expertise coming, bringing their machinery, and all of them were unsuccessful. I mean, it's interesting to, to even just follow the story and hear, hear the interview where, where people that are knowledgeable, skilled, that their job is to drill, right? That's your job. And you've come up with things that drill. And you bring your best drill and you're saying, we, we can't get to them. We can't get to them. And eventually, what happened, this happened last Monday, they got a team of rat hole miners. That's a job. Rat hole miner. If what do you do? <laughs> what do you do for work? I'm a rat hole miner. What does that mean? Well, I, I, I dig a tunnel that's just big enough for me, and I get, hole, I get coal out of the hole. That's my job. I get in there, and I dig by hand to get coal. That, that's who saved them. This team of rat hole miners that got in there in the last 40 feet, that's, that's who broke through. It's not the heavy machinery. It's not the, the drills. It's these guys. These guys in these holes, like rats, right? Digging and digging. And, and finally, they got through. And, they, and then the pipe was put in and, and everybody, everybody got out. That's the deliverance. So if you think about the deliverance out of the, out of the Valley of Acor, that's that. It's when it's complete breakthrough, everybody out, right? But what I want to focus on is on the hope during the 17 days before the deliverance. It's very easy to focus on the, on the success 
very unlikely, by the way, but the successful rescue of the people. But there's a lot happening before then, and this is, this is what they did. Within days of the collapse, because they knew who was there, they knew where they were, they were able to insert a six-inch pipe. How big is six inches? I'm, I'm still thinking centimeters, so is this, this about right? So tiny, right? I mean, this, obviously nobody could get through it. So, so what? Half a foot. Half a foot, okay. So <laughs> this, yeah. It's a, it's a tiny pipe. Nobody can get through it, right? But you could talk to people through it. You can send water down. You can send medicine down. You can send food down. And so for those almost 17 days, that was the way of communication. Friends, that's hope. That's hope. They're not out. They're in the Valley of Acor. But they're getting just enough of what they need to stay alive. And by the way, family members were given like specific times during the day where they can talk to them. And they would talk through that six-inch pipe. And they would talk to people and encourage them, trying to raise their spirits, trying to say, hold on, hold on, we got this, this guy from Canada with his drill. Maybe he can do it. Hold on. And then the next day, he didn't do it, but we got this other guy. And day after day, people are encouraged to stay hopeful, to not give up, to still expect a rescue. Now, the door of hope that Jose has in mind is that six-inch pipe through which we receive the essential supplies and hear the voice of God while we wait for our final deliverance. That's the image. You are trapped, my friends. Until Jesus returns, you're trapped. You're in the valley of Achor. You're in the collapsed tunnel. But the Lord is coming. He is coming, and he will get you out. Your, your final deliverance will come. But until then, don't lose hope. Listen to his voice, because he's speaking to you. He's, he's promising to you. It's passages like Hosea and many other passages in Scripture where God is saying, hold on, I am coming. Hold on, you will be rescued. Hold on, I will set you free. And while you wait, here's just enough water for you to survive. Here's just enough food for you to survive. Here's just enough medicine for you to survive. There's just enough encouragement for you. There's just enough mercy for you for every day just so you can make it till I come back. That's the, that's the picture. This is where we are. And a door of hope, a six-inch pipe of hope has been opened to us. Now, here is the really important question. You may stay hopeful until you're getting water and you're hearing voices of your loved ones, but can you trust their promises? Can you trust that what they're saying, because they're all saying, hold on, we're coming. Like, hold on, we're going to get you out. Can you trust that they will keep their word? That you will actually be finally delivered? Why should we hope to be rescued out of the collapsed tunnel? Will these promises be kept, or is it just empty hope? It's just, we hope we will. I mean, I'd like to be out, but will I actually get out? Will this door of hope open into a place of freedom, into joy and safety? You look at the pictures of the, the miners that finally they got out. 
And you see families, and you see this joy and tears and cameras everywhere. I mean, it's a big celebration. They're safe. So can we trust the hope that the Bible gives us, the hope that God gives us in his promises, to actually matter and work and finally deliver us out and us come out in a place of safety and joy? Well, it all depends on the person who makes the promise. It really does. The grandma who's speaking to her grandkid in the collapsed tunnel and saying, hold on, we're coming. I mean, she means well. She's not digging. She can't get them out. Yes, it's encouraging. I, yeah, I like to talk to my grandma. It's uplifting. But her promise doesn't really matter. So who is making this promise to us? Who is opening the door of hope to us? Who is saying, yes, I know you're in the Valley of Acre, but I'm coming. I'm coming to get you. Who is this? It's the Lord. It's Jesus. The voice you're hearing through the six-inch pipe is the voice of Jesus. And because it's Jesus who's making those promises, that's real hope. The reason it's real is because of the person who's making the promise. Now let me remind you of who Jesus is. In, in the Hosea story, in our passage, the promise is that this relentless lover will pursue his bride. Jesus pursues his church. Jesus goes after his beloved, and he will not rest until your relationship with him is healthy, secure, and forever. He just simply will not rest. And look at what he says. He says, I will allure her. How can God make you faithful to him? By Jesus wooing you back. By Jesus convincing you of his love. By Jesus bringing you back into the blessings of a relationship with him. And if you read later in, in, in 16 and, 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 and on in Hosea 2, he says, In that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal. The Lord says, I will change your heart to such an extent that you will forget about all your lovers. You will forget about all your idols, and you will call me your husband. He says, for I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by name no more. Friends, there will be a time when you will not remember your adultery, where you will not remember your spiritual unfaithfulness because you will be so enwrapped in the love of Jesus. He says, I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the creeping things of the ground. I will abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land, and I will make you lie down in safety. He's saying, the whole creation will be restored, and I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord and in that day, I will answer, declares the Lord. I will answer the heavens, and they shall answer the earth, and the earth shall answer the grain, the wine, the oil, and they shall answer Jezreel. It's one of the children of Hosea. And I will sow her for myself in the land, and I will have mercy on no mercy. 
And I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. Jesus is promising all this. Jesus is actually pursuing you with his unrelenting love, alluring you, bringing you back. Now, to go back to our, to our image of, of miners trapped in the tunnel and, and, and people who are trying to get them out, Jesus, this may be the first time Jesus has, has been compared to a rat hole miner, but you're welcome. <laughs> Jesus is that person who gets into the tunnel and he's clawing his way to you. And friends, he will not stop until he gets to you and he brings you out. When you think about the gospel, what is the incarnation of Christ? If not God coming into our world, God coming into the tunnel, God coming into the valley of Achor. All the things that I mentioned 20 minutes ago, trying to help us identify with that feeling of Israel in the valley of Achor. Jesus felt all of it. Was he not betrayed? Did he not experience dysfunction? Did he not experience despair? Was he not hurt? All those things apply to him. That's the incarnation. During the season of Advent and Christmas, we're thinking about that Jesus coming into our world, coming into the valley of Achor, becoming like us, clawing his way in. And what is, what is the cross if not Jesus being destroyed for us? Jesus being devoted to destruction so we could be saved. He's not like Achan. Achan's one act of disobedience brought death into the camp, but Jesus' one act of obedience on the cross brings life to us. Many people are saved because Jesus did not disobey, because Jesus fulfilled the will of the Father and paid for our sins with his own blood. What is the resurrection if not Jesus breaking us out of the tunnel, breaking us out of the valley? The door that was open just six inches now is open wide. And we follow him into a new life. Now, it's interesting that the same imagery of door and hope and all of that is picked up in the New Testament. Did not Jesus tell us that he is the door? In John 10, he says, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. He is the door that bears the blood on the doorposts. He is the door of hope, but he's also the door to an abundant life. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy, but Jesus says, I came that you may have life and have it abundantly. And then in Revelation 3, he says, the words of the Holy One, the true one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. He is in complete control of the door. He says, Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. This is who's making the promise. This is who's speaking to you through the door of hope. And so for us to be hopeful is to listen to him, is to pay attention to him, is to know that he is the promise maker and that he will do whatever he promised he will do and the final deliverance will come. He is coming for us and he will get here and he will get us out. But until then, until then, we live in hope. And so we ask 
because it will be given to us. We seek because we will find, and we knock because it will be opened to us. Now we're going to take communion, and I'm going to pray over us. And then as you come and take communion, this is for believers, this is for people of hope, this is people who know they're in the Valley of Achor and know that a door of hope has been opened to them. This is for those who know Jesus. So I'm going to pray, and after I'm done praying, we're going to sing, come and take communion right here in the front or in the balconies where you are, or you can take it back to your seats if you need more time to meditate. And if you want an elder bring communion to you, just raise your hand, and an elder will, will bring it to you. And if you want to process any of what the Lord is saying to you, Josh and Beth are here and, and, and happy to pray with you during communion after, after the service as well. So let me pray. Father, I just want to pray for those who are in the Valley of Acre today. There are some people who are feeling that pain more acutely than others today. They're feeling that pull towards hopelessness. Lord, I pray for them. I pray that you would restore their hope at this table, that as they come to this table, they don't just touch the bread and pick up a cup, but that they will see Jesus as the one whose promises always come true, that they will hear your voice and though they are still in the valley of Acor, that they will know that there is a door of hope open in the gospel. Lord, I pray for those who are hurting today, those who are confused, those who are doubting, those who are struggling, those who are feeling all sorts of things that don't even know what to do with them. Lord, would you speak to them? Would you meet with them? Would you open a door of hope in their hearts? And for those who may not be at all familiar with Jesus, I pray that this vivid image of being in the, in the valley of trouble and seeing a door open to hope will speak to them, will arrest their heart, will draw them to Jesus. I pray that they would hear the voice of your relentless love and respond.